Early on Saturday morning, attacks on Saudi Aramco's giant oil plant at Abqaiq near Damam in the eastern province and on the country's second largest oil field at Khurais, about 200 kilometers away, caused major fires, disrupting about half of the kingdom's crude production. From a record spike in oil prices to an escalation of tensions in the region after the US blamed Iran for being behind the strikes, the fallout has everybody inside the region and around the world on tenterhooks for what it could all mean for global energy markets and Middle East stability. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Welcome, Kelsey Warner, Assistant Business Editor. Hello, Mustafa. Also with us is Jennifer Niana, the Nationals Energy Correspondent. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. And for a bigger picture view um, of the unfolding geopolitical situation is our foreign editor, James Haynes-Young. Welcome, James. Hi there. So, Jennifer, if we can pick up with you, maybe for those that aren't fully aware of what exactly was hit um, in Saudi Arabia, maybe explain what are these facilities? So... The main facility that was hit is the Abqaiq uh, oil stabilization plant. Uh, it's located in the eastern province. It has a capacity of 7 million barrels per day, and it's the largest of its kind in the world. It's not a refinery. It's, it's a plant that basically takes crude and separates um, hydrogen sulfide, um, heavy metals, and makes sure the crude is stable enough for transport. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, it has links to all of the big oil fields in the eastern province, so Gawar, the world's uh, largest oil field, uh, has its crude processed in this plant before, it's, before it links to export terminals. Khorei is the plant that was hit, which has a capacity of 1.2 million barrels per day, also sees its crude sent to this plant um, to be, t- not to be refined, but to be processed and then dispatched to export markets. So this is the most important facility that Saudi Arabia has. It accounts for about 7% of global output being processed in this plant. In terms of capacity? In terms of capacity. Um, and uh, with with the attacks, Saudi Arabia has lost the ability to process through this plant. They've shut down uh, the entire plant to make sure that, you know, there, would, there wouldn't be any... Uh, sorry. I just have a kind of a basic question. Mm. What happens to this crude if it's not able to be sweetened at this facility? Uh, it can't be transported. It's, it's highly volatile. Rendered sort of yeah. null. Yeah. Okay. So okay. it has to be processed. So you can't... Uh, so the crude that comes out of the ground has to go through a certain process to, to sweeten it before it can be sent in tankers or transported. And does Saudi Arabia have any other facilities like this throughout the country, or is this really the one and only kind of game in town? It accounts for... Around uh, more than half okay. of of the, of crude output. So even if there are other facilities, this is the biggest. And interestingly, Abqaiq has always been known as the Achilles' heel of Saudi Arabia's energy industry because there's no such facility in the world or in Saudi Arabia that's as big as that. So if you have a facility that's so huge and vulnerable and exposed, uh, it was only a matter of time before it was hit. And it's not the first time it has been targeted. In 2006, Al-Qaeda launched um, an attack on this facility, but it wasn't successful. So it's always been on the radar. It's always, it's always been known as, as a very... Um, you know, vulnerable target. Uh, you say that it's ramping up to this and there have been attacks this year, not on infrastructure yeah. th- of this scale, but on pipelines and, and yeah. elsewhere, other fields. Um, and it hasn't resulted in this kind of disruption. 
But I think it took everybody by surprise that that was the nature of the attacks. And maybe, James, I bring you in here. It's sort of the escalation of what's happening in the region over the last few months. And, and to get to this point now where we have um, you know, a very critical part of Saudi Arabia's economic infrastructure offline, um, the repercussions are expected to be fairly extensive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is the interesting thing. We saw back at the beginning of the summer, you know, comparatively now, a minor attack on on individual oil tankers. And now we're right up to kind of major infrastructure. Um, I mean, what, you know, the big question here is what will the US and Gulf countries, particularly Saudi, do in response to this? And I think uh, the the interesting thing from Tehran is that they're escalating each step and they're testing the response and the resolve of, you know, the international community to take action. And I think what we've seen up till now has been not necessarily a united stance on this. You've got Europe has a different policy where you've got the French trying to mediate with Iran, then you've got the Americans trying to ramp up pressure. But at the same time, America doesn't have all that much pressure more to ramp other than military options. We've got huge sanctions already. There's lots of the economy that isn't sanctioned. But, you know, in terms of just laying on more sanctions, the Iranians have already said, Sure, keep going, but like that's not going to change our position. You know, we can we can keep going. So, I mean, you mentioned Iran. I mean, take a step back. The the hand of Iran has been flagged um, by the Arab coalition. That's the Saudi led force that's helping the the Yemeni government in in Yemen in its fight against rebels. Said that the weapons it indicates from early investigations are Iranian made, and they say that the attacks could not have come from Yemen. If we put this together with what the U.S. has said, which is Iran's definitely behind it, and they and and in, and they think the attacks came from the northwest as opposed from the south, and Iraq is ruled out because U.S. officials have also told Iraq it hasn't come from you. Then, to your point, we're all being funneled towards an outcome that Iran will be blamed outright for this attack. Yeah, I mean, I think from what we know about the attacks, and there's still a huge number of question marks about exactly what was used, whether it's drones, whether it's missiles, whether it's a combination, whether they were ballistic crews, you know, there's huge questions that we still, you know, as the public, as journalists, we don't have the answer to. Possibly the intelligence community knows a bit more than we do. But actually, they're asking a lot of questions as well. And and that also raises a lot of questions about, you know, what uh, we have in terms of security in the Gulf in terms of radar equipment, in terms of air defense systems. You know, we've got the American Fifth Fleet in the region. And yet, as far as we know, they didn't pick up these these missiles um, either or drones either. So there is this big question about exactly where did this attack originate from, which in many ways is sort of immaterial. It, it happened and it could happen again. But there is a difference if it originated in Iraq or in Yemen or, or from Iran itself. Well, the consequence could be who ends up bearing the consequence. The material effect could be. I'm, I'm wondering if you can actually describe what the Houthi-Iran connection actually is for people who might not understand. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if you go right back to sort of 2015 at the beginning of, of the conflict, um, there were lots of question marks about exactly what involvement Iran had with Houthi rebels. As time's gone on, it's become a lot clearer that um, media operations are being coordinated by Hezbollah groups, which is another Iranian proxy, by Iran itself. Uh, there are political links. We saw just a few uh, weeks ago um, senior Houthi officials going to Tehran, meeting uh, with the Ayatollah and meeting with senior officials. Uh, but the big 
thing here is the missiles. Um, you know, the Houthis are a non-state rebel actor from an impoverished part of a rural community. And suddenly in the last kind of four years, three years, they've developed incredibly sophisticated ballistic missile technology. Nobody believes they've done this independently, a, overnight, on their own. Not a head scratcher, is right. what you're saying. Okay. And so there is this question about exactly to what extent Iran is providing this material, what um, extent you know someone like Hezbollah is also on the ground, training, facilitating, um, and, and helping the Houthi rebels. So it's becoming clearer that there is a significant Iranian um, involvement um, in terms of providing the Houthis with with that equipment. So if we com compare it to, you talked about tankers, the uh, sabotage of three vessels off the coast of the UAE earlier this year was a very sophisticated attack. The investigation is still ongoing. We don't have any conclusive results from that. Similarly, the attack on these Saudi Aramco facilities appear to be highly sophisticated. The, the, the pictures that have been released show very small um, holes in, in some of these tanks. Um, it was very directed. It wasn't about causing mass destruction, but a very specific attempt to disrupt facilities there. This investigation could, again, take months. Absolutely. And I think we've already um, seen indications that the U.S. has turn to other allies. They're talking to other allies about um, kind of a multi-pronged investigation here. There's talk that they're speaking with UN experts on this. Saudi, too, is talking about bringing other international experts in to, to help with this investigation. But I think part of that's also a political game here. They're trying to basically get the international community to buy into this investigation and to give it credibility. You know, they don't want to release their own report and then Europe or someone else say, we don't think that's a credible uh, investigation, we'd like to do our own, and then you end up with multiple different tracks. So I think what they're trying to do is get people all on the same page involved in one investigation that comes to a single conclusion. But that's going to take time. On Monday morning, um, oil prices spiked, record spike. They haven't spiked like this since... The Gulf War. The, the 1991. One Gulf War. Yeah. Um, and, and this is the biggest single disruption to oil um, production since the 1979 Iranian Revolution. I mean, the this biggest thing you've probably seen in terms of energy markets in a single event, right? Yeah, fair. Um, it, we haven't seen this kind of disruption in the two th since 2000. Um, disruptions to the oil markets and jumps uh, have been recorded in the 90s, but this is the biggest since 2000. Uh, it's, I think it's bigger than even when um, the Islamic Revolution happened in, in Iran. I think this is the biggest single uh, Look disruption. at the bar graph, the, the yeah, biggest bar in terms of oil disruption. According to the IEA, it's, it's, it's a single biggest. Single biggest. But I think in terms of percentage, the, the other disruptions could have been bigger, but in terms of volume, it is, it is the biggest. And, and oil jumped 19.4% uh, to reach 71. Uh, but it hasn't, it hasn't been steady. It's, it's fallen back. Yeah, so James, you referenced earlier that Previous attacks have been symbolic, and while this one is targeted, was very highly targeted in, a, in the same way the previous attacks have been, this one was no longer really symbolic. This actually is having a material impact. So, Jennifer, can you just describe to us what 5.7 million BPD per day actually means against the backdrop of OPEC Plus coordinating cuts against um, you know, lower oil prices over the last five years? Um, what does this mean? So 5.7 million barrels per day. If you look at the UAE's production, it's uh, more than double of what the UAE produces. It's, it accounts for 5% of global supply. It, it's happened, uh, thankfully, at a time when the global oil markets are sufficiently supplied. OECD stocks are very high, so the OECD 
um, stocks refer to um, oil inventories held by uh, you know, the the world's richest economies, including the U.S. and Western Europe, and, and excludes China and India. And the inventories stand at $3 billion. It's one of the reasons why the OPEC Plus have been working to to make sure the oil markets are well balanced because stocks are, are, are high. Um, I think the, the question now would be how, you know, it, it's, 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 it's slightly damaged Saudi Arabia's reputation as as a reliable supplier of crude because you know it, it it was always taken for granted that Saudi Arabia would be able to bring its oil to the markets. Now going forward after 28 days, which is um, you know the level of inventory, domestic inventory that Saudi Arabia has to meet its export requirements, what comes after that would be very significant. Um, I read some reports earlier today that. Uh, Saudi officials have said they could swap some of the crude grades to some refiners in India, or they could have, you know, they they could look at alternative arrangements with some of their buyers. Uh, but you know, this is uh, th- this would be something that would concern traders and refiners. Um, Saudi Arabia's top three buyers are China, Japan, and India, and there's there's also a lot of U.S. crude available. So, you know. Looking forward, there's also the question of of shrinking market share at a time when there's uh, plenty mm. of, you know, other crude grades that are available. And I think somebody looking at the oil market and seeing that the price had crested $70 a barrel would say, isn't this good news for exporters? So why might it not actually be good yeah, news? Yeah, there's been why? some silliness on social media. Yeah, exactly. Saying, a little, oh, this is great news. little conspiracy theory yeah. th- threads. But um, I think for people who aren't kind of watching the nuance of the market, it's not immediately apparent why there's actually urgency to correct the market to not have this shortfall. Can you describe, and it gets a little bit into actually who Saudi's biggest customers are these days. Yeah, the biggest customers are uh, China, Japan, and India. And and an analyst I was speaking with said the pain point, as he described for India, is $70. Um, And Asian consumers, who are are the biggest drivers for demand growth, uh, they they do not like uh, high oil prices. Uh, When the price crash happened, uh, it was... uh, you know, it, it was it was it was good news for the economies. Many economies didn't fully optimize, uh, the, you know, the crash in prices. But should prices go up, it would be it would come at a time when trade tensions have really weighed in on their economies. Uh, India's, you know, GDP growth has declined. China's GDP growth has also declined. So, it's it's overall not a not good. It's a vulnerable yeah, time yeah, for yeah, global economies, and therefore a vulnerable time for. For oil prices to well. be yeah. spiking. Speaking of which, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump seems to be the man at the center of everything for this situation because the U.S. recently became the world's largest oil exporter for a brief time this, sum- this summer. Yeah. Um, is it produces a lot. The U.S. shale revolution has helped it become a you know a very big producer. They have these strategic reserves they can use. Also, James, you were saying that you know he kind of has this these options to ramp up the maximum pressure that they've been putting on on Iran. He's made several comments on Twitter, all very different. All have been dissected and, you know, poured through. I mean, to you, any does any of it actually mean action in any way? I mean, when you're talking about Donald Trump, you've got an incredibly kind of volatile character. What he says one day he reverses the next. Um, and we don't have a huge track record to, to go on in terms of where he stands on 
military interventions on, you know, even on on foreign policy. We've got a very short window, um, basically, to base our kind of expectation of his action. What we do know is he's pretty reluctant to get involved in uh, overseas conflicts. He doesn't want a war with Iran. Um, but that in itself might be contributing to some of this in that Iran is making the calculation he doesn't want a war. He's not interested in uh, Middle Eastern conflicts. He's been critical of, of the Iraq war. He's been critical of US troops in Afghanistan. So they're making the assumption we can basically keep pushing him and he's not going to do anything militarily. Therefore, we can kind of keep acting um, as we like. But that might suddenly change. Well, what can he do? What can the US do now? Let's say they have to act. And, and because Saudi will, will, will feel it needs to act too in some way, as Jennifer was saying, for its reputation, um, for its stability, its allies in the region, the UAE, its allies around the world are saying, you know, this kind of attack, it's called a terrorist attack. It's called a cowardly attack. So it, it, it's, it's much, much bigger than vessels being sabotaged. It's very difficult to not have some kind of response. So what can they do? There isn't military intervention. Yeah. So, I mean, we could see additional sanctions placed either on Iran, different sectors of the economy that haven't been hit so far, or on more businesses, et cetera, that um, the U.S. believes is feeding into uh, ballistic and, and missile programs. And they wouldn't Iran need has. to actually have a smoking gun, if you excuse the pun, to link Iran and, no. and this attack. They just do it anyway. No, I mean, I think that, that they've been pretty unequivocal so far. That, uh, that they believe it's Iran, that all the indicators point to Iran. And I think what we've seen over the last, you know, uh, over, just over a year is that they are pretty much unilaterally forcing the world to adhere to their sanction regime on Iran um, and trying to kind of curb oil exports, et cetera, which has been fairly successful. Um, but yeah, so I think, you know, other than sanctions, uh, which may or may not start to impact, um, you know, Iranian businesses. Uh, I mean, the thing you've got to remember with with sanctions is the Iranian regime has been under sanctions of some form for decades. And so when it comes to um, anything that feeds into their revolutionary guard, anything that feeds into uh, the kind of political operators or, or things like the ballistic missile program, they've got ways and means of running this kind of shadow economy that can still funnel these things in. They've got ways of procuring equipment overseas. They've got ways of funneling it through proxies and different groups and individuals that are operating kind of clandestine networks. So if you're going to try and hit the ballistic missile program, that's a bit more difficult. Uh, alternatively, you could look for a more defensive option if you're the United States, which is um, putting more U.S. troops on the ground. What that would probably mean is air defense systems, radar equipment, um, and uh, kind of more um, surveillance. So we could see more drones deployed to the region uh, to try and kind of patrol the straits and, uh, of Hormuz and stuff. So similarly to when, you know, everyone's been talking about maritime force, maritime security to protect vessels. And Iran, of course, you know, claimed they seized another vessel this week in the Strait of Hormuz, um, that they could ramp up air defenses around the region to protect um, their own bases and their own assets, the U.S. as well as, as well as their allies, and 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 just make sure that there is more of a deterrent. I guess definitely. I mean, the thing is that the Iranians have been pretty unequivocal. They've said several times, "We can hit U.S. bases around the region. Uh, that's no problem for us." So the Americans are also going to be looking at this and say, "Well, if they can hit um, oil uh, facilities, then they could be hitting bases in Iraq, in Bahrain, you know, anywhere." Um, so they're going to want to bolstering their own security for a start um, 
but there is also this this point about securing allies. And you know, Trump's been a bit um, kind of hit and miss on this. He's sort of said, "I didn't make commitments to to intervene on behalf of Saudi," but it's also said, "We'll wait for Saudi to to make a call and we'll we'll support them." So there's a bit of this kind of um, quite where he's going to come out on, but part of the bedrock of U.S. foreign policy since the Second World War has been securing freedom of navigation of things like oil supplies to allies, even if the U.S. itself doesn't need Middle Eastern oil, lots of its allies do, and that's a strategic interest to them. And if we think about that in terms of the U.S.'s commitment to, to the region, to allies like Saudi Arabia, and, and noises out of Congress, and particularly the Republicans who are saying, this Iranian rhetoric, these threats, what's happening, we have to do something. And then within, within that context, the timing of this couldn't possibly have been worse. Um, the Saudi Aramco IPO was ramping up. The bankers were apparently, according to reports, meeting in Dubai to discuss the way forward. The, the plan had been agreed that it would begin with an initial domestic float and then an international float. So the, do they really want to be pushing forward with an IPO while this conversation is going? I think it's it's a bad time for the IPO. There has been some talk that with oil prices going up, it, it could be beneficial for the evaluation that they're looking at, the the two trillion. But in spite of that, it it, it adds uh, the oil prices are priced in about five dollars of geopolitical risk premium. And for for an Aramco IPO to happen now, it it, it wouldn't be great for valuation if you if you look at it. I mean how do, how has this changed Aramco's risk profile, both in the short term as well as is this our new reality in the long term as well? I think that's something that we're also questioning here, even as residents is what is the risk? There are a couple of things. Uh, one of the things that, is, that, that has been said often is, you know, the engineers are very concerned and have capabilities of looking at what's on the ground but haven't had in, enough technologies to, to really block out, you know, uh, newer technologies like drones and, and, you know, that have exposed these massive sites to such vulnerabilities. So that would be something that investors will be looking at. Uh, number two, um, has there been uh, a lot of transparency and proper communication following these attacks? Uh, Aramco put out a statement, I think, 12 hours after the attack took place, and they said, "We'll wait. You know, you'll have another one 48 hours later." For a huge company, the world's most profitable, and if it's the biggest IPO, I think people investing in this company would need more assurances, more direct communication, uh, and I think this will be a test case on whether that can, whether Aramco can address these issues. And we are, as of yet, still waiting for that second yeah. assessment. Uh, there will be a press conference this this evening, 9.15 UAE time. I mean, James, can you speak to that a little bit about um, this is kind of changed behavior from whomever per perpetrated these attacks. So do you expect this to happen again? Look, I think... Not um, that any of us have a crystal ball, but... No, of course. I mean, I think <laughs> there's slightly two issues to hear that, to this. Uh, the first one being, regardless of whether similar attacks happen again or whether there's more Iranian tensions or whether things do calm down, um, I think militaries in the region particularly, but also the US military, Europeans, um, as well as defense um, development companies, need to seriously address the changing nature of warfare. Just in the last few years, the rise of drones has completely changed things. You had ISIS in Iraq taking $100 drones, strapping grenades to them and flying them into US-backed forces, um, which they just had no way of stopping mm -hmm. uh, other than opening fire on it with a shotgun, which is not a particularly effective means of doing that. When you take that to a state level, you've got the Iranians taking, you know, there's some reports that if there were indeed drones being used, these were $15,000 drones. 
you know, this is not expensive to produce and you can produce them at huge scale. You could be firing hundreds of drones for the price of one Patriot missile. And so there's now this complete imbalance um, that is happening in militaries. So this is something that I know that defense contractors are working on. How do they stop drones? How do they take them out? How do they um, you know, defend airports, oil facilities, uh, military bases? Uh, but we've got a bit of a gap still. That hasn't come online. There isn't much in the way of very effective technology for this. Um, and a lot of militaries for decades have invested in defense against other militaries. So you buy a Patriot missile system to shoot down someone else's planes. But if they're not firing planes at you, then, you know, how are you going to respond to that? And so I think there's going to be a big shift in how people see security in the region. Um, the other point about, you know, if this is all to do with the Iranian tensions and what we're going to see, I don't see a particular end to it anytime soon because... Iran is ruling out any kind of talks without the US going back to the 2015 nuclear deal, uh, which they withdrew from last year. Um, and the Americans aren't going to do that. So you've kind of got both sides in a staring contest, uh, except the Iranians are not going to blink on this. Okay, so quite a scary picture you just painted. Thank you, James. Um, <laughs> <laughs> shall I get to our workshops and start yes. uh, <laughs> working on that solution? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in time in time to come, the historians may look back and, and say that this period could be known as the first drone war, um, and there could be many more to come. Um, and th certainly in the short term and the medium term, the risk profile for the region is higher, but it's been ramping up higher all year, as we've seen mm. an escalation. Let's hope this is the, the ceiling of that escalation. Um, James, Jennifer, Kelsey... Thanks so much for joining us for this chat. Thank you. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you very much. Um, before we finish, uh, there are some other stories you should know about that are on the national.ae. The UAE aviation regulator said that Boeing's 737 MAX is unlikely to return to commercial service before the first quarter of 2020, a timeline that surpasses the target set by the U.S. plane manufacturer. Investcor is inquiring ticketing platform Viva Ticket, which provides software for the likes of Disney World and the Louvre in Paris, as the Bahraini Alternative Investment Manager continues to expand its portfolio of technology investments in Europe. Dubai's real estate regulator will assume responsibility for overseeing escrow accounts held by developers, according to a law issued by the Dubai government. Personal finance editor Alice Hain played along to discover the tricks fraudsters use to extract your banking details. And Mustafa Kandil, co-founder and CEO of Egypt's Swivel, writes that resilient, not smart cities are most important for emerging markets. So that's it for today. All that remains is to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, and you for listening. Do subscribe to our show on whichever platform you listen, and do leave us a review. Do join us again next time.